Hey, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to, what session is this, Andy? Do we know? 40? 43. 43. Oh, my gosh. That's getting up there. So um, we do this totally geeky thing. For 30 seconds, everybody has to turn on their camera so I can wave and say hi. Because otherwise, I'm always so lonely over here. Hello, Joe, I love your background. That's awesome. This is just the best. Thank you, everybody. All my friends. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so lots of things going on. Uh, here in Colorado, um, polar vortex coming up. It's gonna be a high on Sunday, a high of four degrees, high. I saw a guy golfing today. It's like 15 degrees, there's a golfer out there. It's like, I live on a golf course, just crazy. So a couple of things, um, if you're new to this event for 43 weeks starting, 43 weeks ago, we just get together and, and chat. And I love these events because I don't have to do a thing. I don't have to prepare anything. I mean, sometimes I scribble a few notes. Um, but I always start with a few little announcements. So we had a really great webinar yesterday with the sleep doc, Ed O'Malley, who's a member of the Nut Club community. And he just gave the first, uh, a really spanking good talk. Um, on the first three, first of three PowerPoint presentations on the science of medicine of sleep. <clears throat> so um, if you haven't heard that yet, check it out. It's really good. He, he kind of nailed it. Uh, Saturday night is movie night. What's the movie for this week? Do you know? Vanilla Sky? Vanilla Sky, yeah. Oh yeah, Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't stand Tom Cruise actually. <laughs> but this is a good movie. This is a good movie. Vanilla Sky, is, it's a real mind bender. Penelope Cruz and what's her name, Diaz or whatever, somebody else is in it. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Sunday, uh, Dream Sharing Group. Monday, second installation. Uh, we started, we've been requested for quite some months now, actually. People have been asking about doing a weekly meditation thing together. And, and, and finally, finally, after really thinking about it and plotting it out, we launched it. So we had our first session on Monday that's recorded, you can listen to it. Um, we had like 80 people show up. I thought we'd have 10. So I'm excited about this. This is, this is not just a, a kind of get together and practice thing, which we obviously do that, but I put some real thought into it. And so once a week with myself and, and other really qualified people leading when, when I can't, or even just to bring in extra talent, I'm gonna, um, we are going to present a, a somewhat systematic guided meditation with a, you know overview of some of the practices, histories, contexts, um, what it means to accomplish the practice, why to do it, all that sort of thing, and then Q and A. So hour, hour and a half, um, you know, forty minutes or so of actual guided practice. And this will include, uh, in fact, Andy, if you could ping up the little thing I wrote on that. Um, we're going to go through a ton of practices, uh, just a lot. Um, referential shamatha, non-referential shamatha, open awareness, uh, tonglen, um, the inner yogas, some breathing practices, somatic meditations, a bunch. 
and also uh, include the art of contemplation, which I'm kind of big on these days. Um, so we'll be doing um, guided contemplations as well. And when I really thought about it and kind of charted this out, it's going to take probably some couple of years to get through, which is great. I'm, I'm into this more relaxed, open, you know, just take your time and do what needs to be done kind of thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm jazzed about it. So that's on Mondays. Mostly it'll be around 6 p.m. Uh, Mountain Standard Time. There might be a little bit of flex here and there, but depending on, I'm, I'm doing some traveling these days, so I have to work around schedules. <clears throat> but stay tuned for that. Um, yeah, and then the book study group, that's still going on on Tuesdays. We're in part three of that book, um, Dreams of Light, where we talk about the illusion of externality, my favorite part. Lots of science, really cool science. Um, the neuroscience of perception, um, developmental psychology, all these kinds of things. So come join us for some of these adventures, more, more than welcome. And here's what I thought I was going to do today. We had some really good questions come in. But I thought I would share with you, this is kind of my new fun thing to do. Um, I usually write and do my research every day, um, right up till about now actually, which is why sometimes I get a little giddy <clears throat> because I'm um, sometimes just whatever, speedy, whatever. But I did take, I took a, my 20 minute power nap before this one, so I'm totally chilled. I will be meditative during this presentation. <laughs> but I wanted to share with you what I wrote this morning. This is kind of fun. This is from, I'm writing two books, completely different track, um, stepping aside just a tiny bit from all this um, kind of nocturnal meditation stuff to write two books on general mindfulness meditation, what's beyond reverse meditations and stuff. So this is from uh, my first of these two books, which I've already, I already got 150 pages. I'm going to slam the door shut on that. Those of you who write, you know, the essence of writing is rewriting. And so now, you know, it's just going over and over and cleaning it up. So this is what I wrote this morning. I want to share it with you because it's kind of cool about the body, the role of the body <clears throat> that sooner or later, when you do meditation, uh, you're going to run into the body. <laughs> You have no choice. You have no choice but to bring the body along with you. And, you know, a lot of people actually don't. You know, a lot of people get stuck in disembodied practices. Um, and that's not so healthy. So this is what I wrote this morning. And then, then, then I'm going to turn right to the questions. There's some good ones, really good ones today. So as we progress from the mindfulness revolution into the meditation revolution, so I'm doing a little critique of mindfulness, the whole mindfulness thing, how mindfulness itself is just a pacifier. Mindfulness will not liberate, mindfulness pacifies. And in fact, if, if you're not careful, mindfulness can sedate and get you stuck in blissful meditative states of mind, eh, not so good. So I critique that a little bit. As we progress, sooner or later, we're going to run into the body. If we don't, we may find ourselves having to run into serious therapy. <laughs> So true, which often delivers its healing results by teaching us how to stay embodied. Mindfulness does work with the body to some extent, as in the second of the four foundations of mindfulness, <clears throat> mindfulness of body. But it does not explore the depths of our soma and the natural resources contained within. 
exploring the wonders of the mind mandates that we also explore the wonders of the body. That's the subtitle of the book, Exploring the Wonders of the Mind. And then a quote from the meditation master Saraha, where he says, quote, there is no place of pilgrimage as fabulous and as open as this body of mind, mine, no place more worth exploring, end quote. To appreciate the importance of body work on the path, we need to refine our understanding of both body and mind. The influential philosopher Rene Descartes successfully divorced mind from body with devastating consequences. Time for a gut check on Cartesian dualism. Meditation works to mend the philosophical fracture that results in the duality of mind and body. Science can also lend a healing or holing hand. So this is why I wanted to share with you because here's some cool science. We often talk about a gut feeling when we first meet someone or trusting your gut instinct when faced with difficult decisions. The mind-gut connection, which deals with the entire length of our inner tube. Isn't that a cool image? The inner tube <laughs> from one end to the other. <laughs> from esophagus to anus is more than just a metaphor. The enteric nervous system, E-N-T-E-R-I-C, is often referred to as our body's second brain. Hundreds of millions of neurons connect the brain to the enteric nervous system. A network as complex and abundant as a network of neurons in our spinal column. You have as many neurons in your gut as you have in your spinal column. The brain in your head and the brain in your gut are truly of one mind and in constant communication. And then I quote these two microbiologists and immunologists from Stanford. Quote, two scientists. Is that voice in your head? So now what they're doing is they're talking about what's called the microbiome. All the little goodies. You have more, you have more um, cells associated with bacteria in your body than you do so-called your own cells. This is mind-bending. Is that voice in your head that is asking for a snack coming from your mind, or is it emanating from the insatiable masses in your bowels? Recent evidence indicates that not only, not only is our mind aware of our gut, gut microbes, but these bacteria can influence our perception of the world and alter our behavior. <laughs> sure does that whenever I smoke a joint. Actually, I don't do pot. I really don't. But you know the munchies. <laughs> Actually, I don't do pot. I don't like the buzz from that stuff. It doesn't work for me. Back to them. It is becoming clear that the influence of our microbiota, microbiome, reaches far beyond the gut to affect an aspect of our biology few would have expected or predicted our mind, end quote. It's a two-way street with signals streaming back and forth from head to gut and gut to head in a bi-directional way. Lest you think that your heart isn't into it, quote unquote, my playful uh, wordage, wordplay, and that this traffic between body and brain is just a two-way street, Scientists estimate at least 40,000 neurons called sensory neurites abide in the heart, creating a cardiac neural network. Neurologist Kulrit Chaldari, I'm reading this book by her, I'm almost done. Um, she's a cool gal, she's a neurologist, MD, trained in the US, now living in India. She wrote this book called Sound Medicine, wonderful play on words. She's a, a practitioner of Ayurvedic and Siddha medicine. It's a fabulous book <clears throat> because she talks about the healing power of sound using mantra and things like that. It, I, was, I am quite taken with it, almost done. 
So this is what she says. This cardiac nervous system is comprised of independently operating intracardiac neurons, leading some research to characterize it as the little brain in the heart, end quote. The heart actually sends more signals to the brain than the brain does to the heart, back to her, which has a significant effect on brain functions such as attention, perception, memory, and problem solving, end quote. When heart and head are not in harmony, this actually inhibits higher cognitive functions, limiting our ability to think clearly, remembering things, remember things, learn, reason, and make effective decisions. By learning to control our hearts, whether through deep breathing or meditation, we can gain mastery over our brains and vice versa. That was her, end quote. This adds scientific backing to what ancient meditation masters discovered thousands of years ago is embodied in the Sanskrit and Pali word chitta, heart, mind. So let's see, I wanted to skip. There's one other thing here, but let me skip it. Oh yeah, here, so I'm just gonna skip a paragraph. So uh, talking about the gut in the brain, the gut in the heart. So this is what I say, then we'll open it up. But why limit things to just brain to just two brains or even three? In her study of the human brain, the neuroscientist Candace Pert discovered that the information processing receptors on nerve cells were present on most, if not all, of the fifth of the body's 50 trillion cells. This is a really good book. She died not that long ago. Really great lady. Um, a wonderful book, quite influential, called um, The Molecules of Emotion. She established, this is Candace Pert, she established that the mind is not merely in the head, but is, is distributed throughout the entire body. And then Bruce Lipton, who I've been reading lately as well, biologist, he's a very brave scholar, researcher, went a step further and showed how the cell membrane, M-E-M-B-R-A-N-E, -E, is best described as a membrane, B-R-A-I-N. That's his, his neologism. Don't just think of one brain sitting on top of a mindless body or even a second brain in your gut or a third brain in your heart. Think of a mindful body composed of 50 trillion little brains. In other words, a body absolutely full of mind. So when the Hevajra Tantra, one of the most elevated texts in Buddhism proclaims that, quote, wisdom abides in the body, end quote, it now has scientific backing. I love this kind of stuff. Anyway, so that's what I wrote just this morning, part of what I wrote. Okay, so good questions came in today. Let me turn to those uh, on the Google Doc, and then we'll open it up for everybody. So let me get to this document. That's what we do here, it's mostly Q&A. Yeah, Linda keeps asking me in a very sweet way about whether sharing, I should share that dream. I don't even remember which one it is at, at this point, Linda, sorry. Um, I have so many dreams. It's like, I mean, I can't remember which one. <laughs> so I apologize. If I don't kind of seize the moment and share the dream at that, at that instant, I honestly do not remember which one I mentioned at that time. So my bad, I apologize. Next time I have something worth sharing, I'll be a little bit more spontaneous. Okay, this is from Kathy. Can we say sleep yoga is deep meditation while lying down? And that a master doesn't go unconscious 
because their gross body and mind are not tired so that they can remain aware for long periods of time and uh, end, end, end question. Okay. Well, you know, sleep yoga is much more than deep meditation while lying down. Um, that's certainly part of it. It's, it's more than that. It's basically cultivating lucidity awareness in completely formless dimensions. And that's what arises in the deep dreamless state. That's when all the display has been turned down. There's no dream images. There's no thoughts. So those two states are gone. The dimmer has turned all the way down where the display has completely gone off. Any, any kind of form of mental content is, is completely gone which is why most people don't recognize it. We recognize the forms that arise in awareness. We don't recognize formless awareness itself. That's why we black out. So it's much more than, than deep meditation while lying down. I mean, really on one level, deep meditation while lying down, that's more yoga nidra. Same word, uh, nidra meaning sleep, but totally different practice. Um, and then you say, and that a master doesn't go unconscious because their gross body and mind are not that tired. Uh, well, it's also more than that. Um, you know, the, the mind of a meditation master never turns off, just goes from gross to subtle to very subtle. The body may lay down to reconstitute and do its kind of physiological things, but um, the mind of, a, of an awakened one, like what you're suggesting, is never exhausted because it's never, it's never distracted. Um, so sleep is a product of ignorance. Sleep is a product, and I've asked a lot of teachers about this. Sleep is a product of ignorance and distraction is the moment to moment expression of that ignorance. And so this is actually quite interesting. This is why meditation masters who are not distracted during the day are not distracted when they sleep. And so if distraction is a manifestation of ignorance, there's no distraction, there's no ignorance. Therefore, meditation masters don't sleep at night because they don't fall asleep during the day. They don't get lost in the display during the day. So another way to say this is that, you know, these, these amazing beings are aware 24 seven because the clear light mind, that great Eastern sun, this is a sun that never sets. The clear light mind never turns off, never. It's constant. It's, it's what's called the changeless nature. This, this survives old age, sickness, death. I mean, nothing can touch this. So it's not merely just because the gross body and mind are not tired. It's, it's, it's actually more foundational than that. Um, okay. From Astro, what a great name. Hi, Andrew, I would love it if you could please give me some ideas for completing a few dream goals that I have. I would love to perfect a technique which would allow me to use a door, for example, as a portal to transport me to a predetermined location. Also revisiting a memory sounds interesting to me. My attempts with portals so far have not led me to my location in mind. Do you have any tips or techniques that would help? Yeah, if you're listening, I could get a, a little bit more information would help. Some of what you're saying here, Esther, is a bit opaque. So if you're listening and can come on in a second, um, it would help if you could tell me a little bit more. I'm assuming that what you're alluding to here is using the dream door as a portal to another location. Is that what you're asking? Seems like it. 
If so, there are several techniques you can do. Um, the, the spinning technique, it's a technique that's like a whirling dervish technique. It's a technique that you can use to um, stay in a lucid dream as a lucid dream starts to fade. With some sensitivity, you'll be able to tell when the lucid dream is falling apart. Um, usually it, it becomes more cartoon-like, colors fade, it's more disjointed. And sooner or later, you, you actually be able to tell, whoa, I'm about to, I'm about to come out of this dream. Stephen LaBerge came up with this, it totally works. What you can do, because it actually kind of floods the vestibular system, also keeps you involved in the dream. You literally, you can do several things. You can spin like a top with your arms out, I've done that. The other thing you can do is just twirl your dream arms like a pinwheel. But the spinning technique is pretty cool because what you can do is that while you're actually spinning, you, you know, you're kind of scrambling the whole dreamscape. And what you can do there is you can, while you're spinning, <clears throat> you can actually set the intention that when I like, like a revolving door, right? That when you stop spinning, you will be in that new location. That's one technique. So you, you got it. So you set that intention before you go to bed. As the dream falls apart, Again, you know, lucid dreaming is kind of mandatory here. You set the intention, when I stop spinning, that's where that door, so to speak, will open. And, and see, where, see where that takes you. <clears throat> um, let's see what else here. The other way to do this that's a little bit more advanced is you can cultivate a special dream body. Um, this is also connected to what's called dream yoga poa, where you can create a special dream body made out of prana mind that can that you can then FedEx. I I, I playfully say you can overnight it. <laughs> you can overnight your consciousness to whatever destination you want to go. So what isn't what is not clear to me is are you talking about so-called physical locations? Are you talking what are you talking about when you say a location? <clears throat> because that actually helps me understand the postage that's necessary to get you there, right? So if you're on and can help me with that, that's great. I do not understand your question revisiting a memory. That, I just don't know what you mean by that. Um, why can't you just revisit a memory and, and waking consciousness? So I, I think I'm missing something there. It's not clear to me from what you write. So um, if you're there and can say something, you're more than welcome to come on. Um, otherwise I'll continue. From Travis, I've heard you mention this before, so I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit more about the winds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lung, Vayu, Prana, Holy Spirit and Christianity, Holy Wind in the Navajo. Um, yeah, so if you could say something more about the winds entering the central channel. I am wondering about <clears throat> what signs go along with it. I know there are visual signs like colors, so I'm wondering what colors and what do they correspond to? Are there other signs too? I'm interested in a roadmap of these experiences. Yeah, cool topic. So the inner yogas are big on this, as are the our bardo. Bardo yoga is big on this. Um, this is a big topic in, in, in these arenas where, you know, as we start to meditate and our meditation gets deeper and deeper, um, the winds actually do progressively enter the central channel. You, you can't force them there, using what's called kumbhaka in the Hindu tradition, um, inner key practices in Buddhist tradition. 
you can actually force those winds into the central channel, but you seem to be talking about a more natural occurrence of these winds entering. Excuse me, when they do that, uh, this is such an interesting topic. This also has to do with the um, first of the six limbs of the completion stage practices in the Kala Chakra Tantra. So again, I don't know where you are with, with what you do in your traditions, but if you're interested in Buddhism, they're what are called the completion stage practices of the Kala Chakra Tantra. You can read about this in an amazing book called Ornament of Stainless Light. Ornament of Stainless Light. Um, it's a wildly esoteric text as is the Kala Chakra Tantra. And the first of these six limbs uh, of completion stage practices is, I think it's called Pratyadhara, right? Withdrawal. It's exactly about this. It's about how you, you withdraw in that practice system, these winds into the central channel. And as you do that, by the way, this happens just naturally when you engage in really deep meditation or when you're dying. Dying is a form of really deep meditation. And so what happens here are, are the um, 10 signs. There are 10 what are called secret signs associated with this. They're called secret because only practitioners see these and they are each encroach, they're each indicative or signs of the encroaching of the clear light mind. So you're getting closer and closer to the clear light. You can see this in your meditation. And so the, the place to go for this is, you know, the Bardo yoga teachings. So the, the signs, the classic signs are first of all, mirage, when the gross wind of, of earth element dissolves into water element, you, have a, you literally have experience of a mirage with your mind's eye. The next one, when water dissolves into fire, you, you literally have an appearance of smoke. And um, Kempo Rinpoche, my teacher, was once asked, well, what, what does that really look like? <laughs> he, he was great. Well, he said, you know, it's like this room we're in here. It's like somebody just pipes in a bunch of smoke. <laughs> okay, got it. And then there's the whole, then there's the fireflies and then there's the candle. And, then, and so because there's so much to say here, uh, I, I recommend... Um, I'm thinking of which books in the, uh, in the Bardo. Uh, Mind Beyond Death by Pulna Rinpoche goes into this. Um, Sogyal Rinpoche's book. And I get, I get some flack these days about still recommending Sogyal Rinpoche's book. This is a, a tricky topic. Pema, Pema Chodron still continues to recommend him. Before he you know, kind of strayed in a rather colossal way, um, that book, which he wrote decades before he strayed, it's a pretty darn good book. And so do we categorically throw the baby out with a bathwater and say, I don't care what this guy wrote. I don't want anything to do with him. I leave that up to you, but this is a good book. And even Pema, she was, she was attacked. I wouldn't say attacked, but questioned quite pointedly. And she just said, hey, you know exactly what I'm saying now. This is a good book. And it was before he did whatever he did. So in that book, he also goes into it. A lot of Bardo texts talk about these sorts of things. Um, are there other signs? Well, there's 10 of them. I think, isn't that enough? <laughs> How many more signs do you want, dude? 10 signs. And, and again, you, you see these, or that's an interesting phrase. It's non-dual perception. They see themselves. You don't actually, you're not actually seeing these signs. They, they are reflexively aware. So um, recommend that. And then if you're a really deep diver in the Buddhist tradition, the first completion stage practice of the six limbs in the Kala Chakra, 
It's all about this. This is awesomely interesting stuff. Okay, from Chris. Next question. Sometimes I have what I call a tactile lucid dream. If I, for example, take hold of someone's arm, then the physical sensation of doing so are exactly the same as I would have felt in the daytime. I mean, isn't that cool? I love that kind of stuff. Back to his question. The intensity of the sensation invariably shocks me awake. How can I avoid be woke, being woken up to in this way? Well, a prep for it, prepare for it. Um, use that actually as a dream sign. So with a little bit of preparatory work, you know, you can actually say, okay, I, I know this is going to happen. Um, I, when I feel that experience, I'm actually going to use it as a dream sign to stay in the dream. And the other thing I might recommend, you, you can just experiment here. It's going to be different for different people. But you can, you can actually try to engage the dream um, visually. In other words, get, get more involved with that so-called sense faculty. I mean, isn't it interesting? There, there are no sense faculties in there. There's no, there's no arm in there. There's no eye, no ear. No, none of that is in there. But yet you can feel, hear, smell, taste, think just as you can in the waking state. I mean, this is super interesting to me. So if you have this kind of jolting experience, um, I would prep for it during the day, um, almost rehearse it, like mentally do what's called <clears throat> active imagination type practices, active visualization, actually visualize it, feel it, return to that feeling and memory. And so that when you have it again, you're kind of um, almost in a certain sense, desensitizing yourself to it. You're, you're actually kind of reducing the charge by becoming more familiar with it, see? So that then when it happens, it won't jolt you back up. And then the other thing you can do is just distribute more of your awareness to other senses. So as you wake up and you start to do that, you can go, okay, usually when, when this happens, I wake up. So I'm going to distribute my awareness to my other senses. Of course, even though they're not there, you're creating them. I'm gonna look a little bit more. I'm gonna to try to hear a little bit more, maybe even smell more. So that dilutes the concentration of the taction of, of, the, of the tactile sensation, see? So then in a certain sense, you're reducing the charge and that will help you stay in. So give it a try. That's kind of an interesting um, so-called problem. From, uh, okay, from Farzad. Hayandu does mastering, oh, another prana question, cool. Does mastering one's prana accelerate the deepening of realization? Absolutely. How does Chinese Gong? I don't know about Gong. I know about Qigong. Um, so I wonder if you're referring to the same thing. I don't know about Gong, but how does Chinese Nyegong Qigong compare with Tibetan energy work? Well, it compares. It's not quite the same. And again, I don't know this particular practice you're referring to, but there are obvious similarities. I'm sure there are differences between subtle body work in the Chinese and Tibetan systems. So I can't speak with real authority on that because I'm not sure what you're referring to. But the real question is, does mastering one's prana accelerate the deepening? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, this idea of, of working with wind, breath, prana, this is so colossal that even the word spirit as in spirituality comes from a root that means breath. So breath work, prana work is hugely important. In, in the um, Tibetan arena, 
some scholars say that it makes sense to me that one third, like of all Vajrayana Tantric practice, one third is devoted to the inner yogas. And those inner yogas are wind yogas. Wind prana, this is the most powerful element in the universe. Zikar, or, um, uh, His Holiness Kensei Rinpoche talks about it. You know, wind, wind is that which creates and destroys individual and collective world systems because wind is, is space and motion, mind and motions, activated mind. So prana and working with prana is huge. Um, and so therefore, yeah, if you're into this sort of stuff, whether it's pranayama, whether it's, uh, again, all these wind practices, um, the kumbhaka, the um, inner yogas, the chandali, trokor, that kind of stuff, anything that works with mastering prana, because the mind rides on these winds. And so by, by mastering prana, you're learning how to master your mind. Same thing. So in short, absolutely. Okay, a couple more, and then I'll pause. There are a couple more that came in, but I'll pause so live people can ask and then we'll come back. So this is from Let Letitia, Letitia. If certain brave wave frequencies are conducive to REM, uh, yeah, they are, such as theta. Yeah, it's mostly theta. Um, and maybe delta for clear light, uh, delta for deep sleep. Delta is not necessarily a signature for clear light. Um, delta is zero to four hertz. That's associated with deep sleep. Zero on the display, you know, the EKG display is flatlined, so to speak. That's probably somewhat resonant with clear light mind, but you can't say for sure that clear light is associated with just delta. I think there's also some interesting data that could be connected to gamma. So there, the, the, the five brainwave status um, going from the lowest to the highest, there's delta, <clears throat> which is deep dreamless sleep, um, zero to four, theta, which I think is like four to eight, roughly, alpha, <clears throat> beta, alpha is what, what you experience when you're in that liminal phase one sleep, beta is where most of us are now. <clears throat> and then there's gamma, which is um, 40 Hertz and above which is really um, indicative of, of synchronization in the brain altogether. It's a really interesting state. So um, I think it's possible that clear light could also be connected with gamma, interestingly enough. But anyway, back to your question, what is your regard for binaural brainwave entrainment recordings? How about brainwave entrainment devices such as the HeartMath EM wave device? Any to recommend? I think these are cool. I don't use them. Um, but I think they're cool. They, they work with this kind of more integral approach. There's really, I think it's a great contribution of the West that is based on this big word called neurophenomenology. Neurophenomenology. Um, this is a term coined by the neuroscientist Francisco Varela. And what this refers to is that any experience, that's the phenomenology part, has a brain or a neurological signature. And so therefore, when you enter a particular state, there is a brainwave correlate. That's why you can have brainwaves that, that are related to certain um, you know, waking, dreaming, sleeping states. And so this is a two-way street. You, know, you can bring about changes in your experience, that's the phenomenology part, by what you do with the neural part. 
whether it's um, supplemental drugs, agents, or in this case, these entrainment devices. So, uh, you know, I haven't tried them, so I can't really speak about them. They make sense to me. Honestly, what I would do is I would work more with mantra. I mean, that's what mantra does. Uh, mantra is, is an entrainment device. So, you know, if you're trying to work with um, clear light mind states, you can try the sound of the mind that's associated with deep dreamless sleep, which is home, at least in this tradition, H-U-M, home, 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 home. That's an entrainment. It's more effective than these binaural things in my estimation. That's one reason I don't use these gadgets, though, again, I think they are completely viable. These are what are called bija mantras, and so C-syllable C mantras. So home for the uh, heart, for deep, deep sleep, deep, deep, dreamless, clear, light sleep. Um, om, I'm sorry, uh, my mistake, ah, A-H, for um, dream. That's the seed bija syllable for the dream state. So what I would do is I would just consider reciting that bija mantra. You know, for instance, for the heart, hum, um, deep dream, dreamless for the for the dream state and the throat. Ah, 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 ah. And notice what happens if you do this repetitively. I mean, it, it's really powerful. You activate that chakra, you bring energy into it, you open it, you're inviting the pranas, the winds, the, the bindus into that area. So that's what I would do. Um, and uh, this is why, you know, I'm going to be interviewing a couple people on my club coming up because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a musician. Music has been a big part of my life. So Krishna Das has, has agreed to talk to me. So I'm going to bring him on and I'm going to try to get um, Kulreet Shadadi on as, as well because um, I'm pretty impressed with her book. So I'm going to start to do a little riff with a couple kind of mantric people around all this. So in short, that's what I have to say about that. So uh, maybe one more, and then Andy, we can bring a couple live ones, and then I'll come back to some more written ones. These are good questions. So this one, Doug. <clears throat> the subtext of your book, Dream Yoga, is panic. Is it? <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe, I, maybe I have PTSD. I don't remember. The subtext of your book, Dream Yoga, is panic. Okay. When you experienced emptiness, both in college as related to in the prologue, <clears throat> oh yeah, I did relate that story. And on page 236, panic and wake myself up. <clears throat> I don't remember page 236, but I believe you. <laughs> Stepping in emptiness brings an existential panic. It, yes, it definitely can. But between the time you wrote Dream Yoga in 2015 and your new book in 2020, you apparently overcame your existential panic when your inner subtle body died. Man, you're reading all my books, dude, this is awesome. You just I keep mentioning all my books, preparing to die. You're my friend, no matter what you do. <laughs> How did you overcome the panic reaction to formlessness and move into the Dzogchen Dharmakaya zone? Oh yeah, okay. Um, Buddha standard time is uh, <clears throat> Lama Suryadas talks about it. Yeah, this is this one's kind of easy to answer. Maybe not so easy to to do by by becoming more familiar with the nature of fear. This is why I've written so much about fear. This comes from my experience. You know, really working a lot with this thing called fear. 
of which panic is just a more heightened manifestation. So for me, a lot of it was working very directly with fear. Um, what is this thing called fear? Why am I afraid? Where is that coming from? So uh, that's why I, I work so much with that topic. So I worked a lot deeply, deeply exploring the nature of fear and actually putting myself in, you know, without being a spiritual like thrill seeker, that's the near enemy of these sorts of things, actually putting myself in, in frightful circumstances, frightful situations, intentionally, safely, uh, meditatively as a way to establish a relationship to that contraction. Because the reason you, you panic is because you contract. And so I wanted to understand the fabric of contraction so much so that the second book I'm writing, you know, 50% of that book is on contraction. So this is a very personal thing for me. And the other thing deeply connected to this, Doug, is by doing more and more formless meditations, um, doing these formless practices, becoming familiar during the day. And remember, that's what meditation means, right? To become familiar with. If I can become familiar with these formless dimensions during the day, I'll recognize them at night and they won't freak me out anymore because I'll have had that introduction, that familiarity. So even then, it is a little bit like EMDR. It's a, it's a little bit like a desensitization technique. Um, just, you know, titrating, going back into it more and more and more so that it just doesn't have that same panicky charge. And so, uh, I actually use that fear and panic as a kind of a sign, as a, as a good thing, as a place to go. You know, if you really want to grow, don't follow your bliss. Yeah, follow it a little bit, but be careful. Follow your fear. You really want to grow? Follow your fear. So, yeah, just that. Um, and then strengthening the view. You know, really, really deeply studying these maps of the mind. Understanding, like, where is this fear coming from? Even on the level of the map. Why, why is there fear? What, what is that all about? So yeah, thanks for the opportunity to riff on that. Um, and it's definitely changed. I mean, we'll see what happens when I die. I'll probably just completely freak out and everything I'm saying will be, you know, total bust and I'll go right to hell. <laughs> you never know. Let's drink to that. But honestly, I feel somewhat prepared. We'll see. Because I work with this stuff all the time. I, I work a lot with fear. Um, my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, allegedly attained his awakening doing what are called charnel ground meditations, you know, in India and Tibet. He went to these really horrific, terrifying places. That's where he went to meditate. And because I'm, I'm a power, you know, strong student of this guy, he, he also worked a lot with us with fear. I mean, to the point, no kidding, where he, he said, and I, I used to do this at my programs, but then I don't do them because they scare too many people away, <laughs> where literally I would watch these just God awful, wretched horror movies, like the whole Saw series. Remember those? And they're so bad. I mean, they're really bad. They're revolting. They're more stupid than creepy. But I watched them because... Um, Kempo Rinpoche said, you know, you can work with fear by watching these. The other thing I did, and these really creeped me out, is some of these really unsettling VR, virtual reality programs. I don't know if anybody out there has seen these puppies. They are seriously creepy. I mean, I, I did one a couple of years ago. I mean, and this is, I mean, here I am, I'm, I'm in the damn VR. So I know it's, I know it's a virtual thing. 
And the setup here was, you know, I'm in, the, I'm in this VR setup and I'm on this bed. So this is my environment. And what happens is these damn little creepy gremlins and ghouls would just like pop up all over the place. I mean, and, and I knew it was so bizarre. It was like, I knew this is VR. I knew these guys are gonna be there to scare me and they, they still scared me. So I'm sitting in, my, in this bed, like, and then all of a sudden one of these mofos would just, I turn over, ah, and there he is, you know? Scared the bejesus out of me. And so the VR thing around this is really powerful. Um, you can really work with your fear. And my friend Pema Chodron, when I took her into the VR lab, she actually, to her credit, she, we did something somewhat similar when she came in. And to her, her amazing credit, she, she called me up a couple months later and she said, Andrew, I want to do it again. She wanted to work with her fear. And, and she came up to this one, you know, kind of terrifying location. Her knees were, I was, it was amazing. Her knees were shaking. And, and finally, I just said to her, I said, I said, Pema, think of your guru, think of your teacher. And it just completely pacified her. So that's the other thing you can do is, you know, think of your teacher, think of your guru. So um, that's the way I did it. And it's, this is a really big topic. This is super important because when you die, you know, in the darkness of frightful existence, you're, you're going to be heading towards this sort of thing. Fear is the affective matrix of samsara. Everything we do sublimates is sublimated by fear. So I'm going to let that go because there's so much to say about this. So a couple of questions from you all live and then, oh, they keep coming in, which is great. I'll do the, my best to get through all of these, but I want to make sure for some live questions. Yeah, right now we just have David queued up for a live question. Bring in Dave. Okay, then I can come back. Uh, thank you. David. Hi. I've been wanting to ask you this question, Andrew, for a while. Um, uh, the, the, the partner of a dear friend, family friend of mine um, is just consumed every night by nightmare after nightmare to the point that falling asleep is almost an act of desperation. Yeah. Um, and she's had so much unhelpful advice that she and, 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 it's, and she's so terrified of the whole thing. She doesn't even want to talk about it much. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I want to help her. I want yeah. to find things that will work. Um, what would you suggest? I mean, what techniques and what books, both? Oh, geez. So tell me a little bit about her background, David. Is she um, spiritually oriented, um, no path? Uh, tell me a little bit about her history and where she kind of um, lives. Well, um, uh, uh, so we're all in, in Nova Scotia. She's from, from New Brunswick. Uh, she, she came out of a of, a, of an old time, well-established cult sort of thing, um, Watchtower Bunch sort of stuff. Um, and uh, so a very cultish family, but she still loves them. But um, so there, there's really heavy background stuff. She's, she's a very strong community activist. She's, uh, she has a disability that'll get stronger as she gets older. And her partner um, has done, um, you know, they're still pretty young, but uh, has done lots of, of meditation practice, but um, he's not doing much at all ever since um, the Sakung issues hit, um, literally right around him. You know, he, he was pretty close to it all. Yep. 
so uh, is that enough? Well, so this person does not seem to have a spiritual allegiance or path or practice or anything like that. How, how spiritual a person is she? Is there a spiritual component to her life or no? Super ethical component to it. And, uh, but I don't see any spiritual practices. She's not going to church. She's, um, um, she, uh, she doesn't okay. meditate. Yeah, that helps because then, I mean, the first thing that came to mind, if, if, if the person was spiritual, to direct them towards teachings and maps that point out, you know, the basic goodness of the mind. Um, but that may not work for her. Yeah, these sorts of things are challenging. Honestly, what I would do, uh, I mean, this is where the professionals come into play. I, I can say a couple things from my own experience. But um, one thing that she could consider is um, my dear friend, Claire Johnson, PhD, excuse me, first person to get, a, I think, PhD in lucid dream therapy. I just got her book this week. It's really good. Um, it's called uh, The Art of Transforming Nightmares. Oh. I would recommend it. Yeah, I, I endorsed it. Um, I literally just got it in the mail this week and it's really good. Um, Claire's a very sensitive scholar, um, spiritual person. It's a really good read. You know, outside of that, uh, there has to be a willingness, you, you know, there has to be some crack in her fabric that can allow you even the opportunity to, to bring some light. Um, because if there isn't that, sometimes there's so much contraction, which, which is such an irony because it is in fact contraction that initially generated these experiences that are now lodged in that dimension of her unconscious mind, which is where she goes contraction she feels is a defense against it but it just exacerbates it so you know working against so many levels of contraction is not easy and there may not be a way to get in there for you um outside of maybe just passively saying hey have you, have you consider looking at this book that way she can flip the pages on her own time um she can look at it and see if anything in there speaks to her but you know, sleep doctors, like my friend Ed O'Malley, who did the webinar yesterday, I mean, these people, they are professionals. They are trained in this. And when you start having this level of sleep um, uh, nightmares and the like, uh, I mean, you start talking about things like trauma and trauma is, it's difficult for me, David, because these, you know, these are really deep um, and, you know, intertwined complex topics and for me to spit out a life-changing bit of information in three minutes you know you know how much can i actually say but these things are fundamentally absolutely they are workable um, because your mind is workable and so i would probably as a very safe unobtrusive way so you're not you know coming in with too much um information, even though your heart's in the right place, I might just give her that book and just say, just let me know what you think. Is there anything here that speaks to you? Because if she, if she doesn't allow that, if she's so contracted, I hate to say it, there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, if there are avenues where she's willing, she's hurting enough, where she wants help, oh my gosh, there's so much that can be done for her. I mean, there's so much. Um, this is not that terribly uncommon. People that suffer from PTSD, I mean, speaking of virtual reality, you can, you can absolutely positively desensitize people from these states using VR, using EMDR, you know, the eye movement desensitization techniques. There are a host of very skillful Western 
skillful means that can 100% address this for her. But there has to be a, a, an avenue of receptivity on her part. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'll probably leave it at that because there's just so much to say. Get Claire's book just came out pretty darn good. And it's by a PhD. She's a scientist type, you know, so it's, it's rigorous and it's heartfelt. Um, and that might, she might just flew, flip through it and say, oh, oh, I, I didn't know I could do this. Oh, and that way she can kind of titrate it. She can do it on her own terms. So probably the best I can say, Amigo, you know, when you start talking about things like trauma, night panics, night terrors, uh, you know, these are, these are topics where the, the terror and the panic and whatnot is proportional to the, to the trauma, to the degree of unprocessed, undigested, unmetabolized experience. And so these things take a little bit of time, but they absolutely positively can be managed. It's just a matter of how much she wants to release it. And, and as strange as it may appear, and I'm, I, I have no idea if this is the case with her, some people are so invested in their pain that whether they know it or not, it's working for them. This is a really interesting kind of bizarre phenomena that on one, or, one way or other level, it's something's working for her. Um, and so you have to also be aware of that, that she may, you know, again, I can't say for sure because I don't know this person, but sometimes people hold on to these things for a reason. Um, but basically, they take a little bit of time and energy and care and love to be kind of teased apart, but they absolutely positively, 100%, they can be managed. There just has to be a chink in her armor that allows that light to come in. Otherwise, you can't do anything. That sounds pretty good. The state-of-the-art book. Yeah. Uh, and she's very intellectual. Um, um, she, she has a consulting firm on people with disabilities. Yeah. And you can also you can also tell her, hey, I have a friend who knows this author and he can put you in contact with her. So if she resonates with it, I can put her in contact with Claire and she can work with Claire. So I would start there. Oh, right on. OK, Migo. Thank you, Andrew. Welcome. Nice to see you. We've got some more live ones. You want to take okay. them? Yeah. Um, next, we'll bring in Jared and then we have Kathy and Evelyn in the queue. Hey, can you hear me okay? Hey, bud. Cool. Yeah, thanks for putting this on. This is my first time. Oh, um, welcome. What's your name? I'm Jared. Hey, Jared. So I was initially just going to chat my question, but after your talk on fear, I thought I'd speak up because I don't really like public speaking. Oh, so, perfect. Good for you. <laughs> I guess my question, I was talking with my brother last night about like astral bodies um, regarding like the causal astral and the gross body. And we were wondering what happens um, kind of during the day to your astral body. Can it, if I'm at work, can my astral body go off and like interact in astral planes or astral realms? Or if I'm sleeping, can I meet the astral body of someone who's awake? And then kind of the, the last question was, it, does my astral body kind of have, have its own, I guess, life? I guess that's my question. Yeah. Yes and no. <clears throat> and yeah. And, and so first of all, when you use a term like astral body, this is one of these, Jared, this is one of these what are called multivalent terms, which means it has a lot of different meanings depending on different contexts. And so when you use the word astral, that, that is not a term 
that is generally used in, in the wisdom traditions or the literature that I study and practice, but it's just, you know, astral body is deeply connected um, and astral projection and all that sort of thing is deeply connected to this whole intermediate bandwidth that we associate with the subtle body. And so, oh, you know, it, it's difficult to say. Um, you can learn about this um, from, from both a Hindu and a Buddhist context. Um, and one way to look at this is to explore the koshas in Hinduism, you know, the five sheaths, right? So this is more associated with what they call pranamaya kosha. Um, and you could, it's really worth exploring. Um, I actually think because they, you know, the Buddhists have one kind of bandwidth for that called Sambhogakaya. The Hindus, you know, we have, well, let me say it this way. The Buddhists have three kind of kayas or bodies the Hindus have five. So the Hindus have a little bit more granularity. So I would explore this using the, uh, an exploration of the five koshas, the five sheaths. And then with that said, I can speak with a little bit more authority about the nighttime arena, where in fact, this so-called astral body, subtle body, in fact, can separate from this. That's where near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences come from. That, that type of body can differentiate from this one and, and travel. So that's a little bit connected to that earlier question, you know, like traveling to different places. Even as Holiness the Dalai Lama playfully says, you know, if you mastered this, you could become the perfect spy, right? So it is definitely, it's actually part of dream yoga is cultivating this. So absolutely positively, that's, that's where that is nurtured um, the most. The first part of your question, you know, can that astral component of yours separate out I can't speak with authority on that. Um, it would seem my first intuition, and it's just a guess, is probably not. Um, but again, I, I'm not the person to talk about, you know, the, the kind of translocation of these sheaths. My understanding is, is, I can speak with some authority from the Buddhist perspective. From the Hindu perspective, um, my understanding of this biofield, this aura, whatever you want to call it, um, I don't know of any literature that talks about that translocating during the day. But again, I'm not sure. Like, for instance, if you're really, you know, like a shaman and you have the capacity through really powerful breath control, imagination control to like move your mind in that space during the day, that would make sense to me. But again, um, I'm shooting a little bit from the hip here. So maybe I'll pause for a second to see if any of this is landing with you, but that's what my first response is. Okay. Yeah. So, so thanks for that answer. Um, so I don't need to worry about my astral body running off while I'm, you know, at work or anything. No, no, it doesn't sound like no, it. no, not really. Um, no, I mean, there are, there are translocations of wind energy that can take place through, you know, kind of trauma through working inappropriately with wind energy. So when, when this connects a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, these subtle bodies are connected to these very subtle winds, for sure. And, and with, with kind of really abuse, abusive relationships to wind energy practices, these energies can in fact be dislocated, translocated, and that can be problematic. But everything I'm hearing from you, there's no suggestion of that type of experience. And so fundamentally, um, I mean, intuitively, what I'm picking up here using my astral body connect to connect to yours, 
<laughs> I think you're cool. I think you're good. Uh, you know, that kind of thing is, is important. Um, I, and on the side note here, as, as interesting as, as these phenomena really truly are, I think the most important thing is to be as fully embodied as you possibly can in this, um, in this body, um, Anamaya Kosha. And because once you maintain full embodiment here, then in fact, you know, you can very safe, safely, whatever kind of translocation projection you want to talk about, once you have a healthy center, you can then decentralize and it'll never be a problem. So I think in the larger scheme to me, from what I'm hearing in terms of like a take-home thing is whatever you can do to wake down, to be fully, utterly embodied in this body. Because when you're fully planted in your body, then it resonates through all these biofields. And then if in fact, you know, from that healthy stance, then you can do this emanation thing, this projection kind of thing. So I just say that as a sidebar so that, you know, these, these like the Monroe Institute and all this OBE stuff, um, I, I get a little bit um, careful around those sorts of things. Um, they can be sorcerers' traps. They can be very kind of high-level distractions. And while they have a place, it's not the central place. The central place is be here now in this body. And then from there, these other subtleties will naturally start to manifest themselves for you. So that's what comes to mind. Okay. Muted. Cool. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for joining us. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, th I think I muted myself. Thank you. Um, could I ask you a really quick follow-up question? Sure. Um, is there a tip to tell if you're meeting someone or something in a dream or if it's just like a dream character or if it's like a real someone's real astral body? Yeah, there's definitely some tips. Um, one thing you can do is a little bit like what I was talking about before. You know, one of the differences between an OBE and a hyperlucid dream is constancy. So first thing you want to do is that, you know, you, you can determine in a number of ways, whether you're dreaming or having an OBE by constancy, by object constancy. Um, and so one thing you can do is, is if, if there's something you can look at, pull it away, bring it back. If it doesn't change multiple times, that's more like OBE. If you bring it into your line of vision, like your hand or whatever, bring it back and it changes, that's a dream. Um, spin, like I was talking about earlier, that's a really great litmus test because if you're in a dream and you spin, 99% of the time, I don't know what the exact stats are, but I'm sure somebody's done a study on it. When you stop spinning, you're gonna be in a different environment. If you're in an OBE and you spin and you stop, you're gonna be in the same environment. Um, so that's a really powerful litmus test, just spin. If you're in the same place, do it again. Same place, do it again. Same place, that's an OBE. If you spend in your different place, that's a hyperlucid dream. The other thing is try to read um, because generally, you know, left hemisphere is mostly offline. That's why it's so hard to read in the dream for most people. Um, if there's something there that you can read, see if you can read. If there's constancy in reading, more likely than not, it's an OBE. So those are things that you can play with. It'll give you a little bit of a test. You can suss that out for sure. Okay. All right, great. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, bud. Okay, maybe one more live one, Andy, and then, or whatever, two, and then we'll go back to some of these written ones. Okay, uh, next we'll bring in Kathy. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Thank you so much for all the answers. It's so wonderful, super Thanks. appreciate. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, so I'm trying to practice lucid dreaming and all that, um, but I have two cats and they like come and wake me up almost every two hours for different things. So I just kind of, I just wake up after two hours or three and I feed them a little, I go back to bed and, you know, somehow I manage like eight hours. And then if during the day I'm a little bit tired, I kind of just take some naps. Um, but I don't know, I, I guess that's maybe not so good for lucid dreaming. Well, it's not so great for sleep health altogether. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to the interview we did with uh, the, uh, the webinar we did with Dr. O'Malley yesterday. The sleep thing is super important. You know, I mean, the, the, you will die of sleep deprivation before you die of, of starvation. Sleep is more important than food. And so um, personally, I mean, you know, this is just me. <clears throat> sleep is pretty darn precious for me. Um, mm. I'm not too keen on letting anything, as much as I love pets and cats or whatever, I'm not going to let them ruin my sleep. Sorry. That's just me. So um, my thing is do whatever you can to maintain the integrity of your sleep. You will live longer. You'll, you'll literally live longer. You'll circumvent eight. You'll slow down aging processes. You'll have, it's just the benefits of good sleep are just colossal. With that said, you know, if you're in that kind of situation and you don't want to change it, then so be it. Then you can, in fact, use it. Um, you can use these sleep interruptions to practice what's called the waking back to bed method. Um, if you're not familiar with that, I recommend you read up on it. Um, Stephen LaBerge writes about it in both his books, uh, Lucid Dreaming and Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming. That's kind of his invention. The waking back to, uh, waking back to bed method conjoined with what he calls the mnemonic induction of lucid dreams, the mild method. These are very powerful ways to bring about lucidity with these types of sleep interruption issues. So um, if you don't want to change your lifestyle, I would read about wild and mild and incorporate it. Um, but I think honestly, it's more important for me to just maintain really solid, good sleep health. Um, your, your pets are not going to die from uh, abandonment issues. <laughs> put them in the other room. But again, that, that's a decision you have to make. So something like that, okay? Yeah, and in general, um, does like sleeping more help with lucid dreaming practice? Like the Absolutely. more, you know, the more like you get used to that mind, mindset and then I don't know, maybe sleep like 16 hours a day. No, I no, mean, at a certain point, the, no, no. At a certain point, the, the benefits of sleep backfire actually. If you sleep too long, interestingly enough, that paradoxically can also hurt you. So, you know, again, we talked about this with Ed yesterday, um, depending on the age, you know, seven to nine hours, um, eight hours being the sweet spot. So sleeping longer than that, yeah, some people need 10 hours of sleep, but generally sleeping longer than that, actually the benefits backfire. It, it can actually be somewhat, you know, deleterious to do that. But having good sleep patterns, being able to sleep in, that sort of thing, if, if I'm understanding your question, absolutely positively will help you have more success with lucidity because you're, you're paying more homage to the natural sleep cycles and the rhythms of REM and non-REM. So just establishing regularity, um, you know, kind of homogeneity in your sleep patterns, super helpful. That's why we brought Ed on to do this because it's like my teachers when I did my long retreat, you know, they, they had this kind of thing, no dreams, no dream yoga, no good sleep, no dreams. So you start with good sleep. From that, dreams more likely arise. From that, then you know they build on each other, and the foundation of good 
infrastructure, biological sleep is super important. Okay. Yeah, and it should be sleep like in one session, right? Not, not like necessarily. Not no. necessarily. Consolidated sleep is is a Western invention. I mean, we used to have what's called biphasic, polyphasic sleep cycles. Um, with the until the advent of artificial light, people would sleep when it get dark. Three four hours they'd sleep. They'd wake up. They'd be up for two three four hours. Then they go back to what's called the second sleep. So the consolidated eight-hour block is a relatively recent invention, believe it or not, um, brought about by the uh, in, uh, artificial light. So that's one reason I think people do, you know, have kind of sleep disruption issues sometimes because there's this kind of, you know, archaeology of consciousness, this fossil of consciousness, which we inherit that that actually predisposes us towards biphasic sleep. But most people, you know, when it gets dark tend to consolidate. Um, so it depends on you. You know, this is why it's helpful to understand your own patterns, to understand sleep cycles, good sleep hygiene. All these things come together to really help you um, have good sleep, which is colossally important. Thank you, Andrew. I'll drink to that. Okay, cool. Okay, bye-bye. Good, bye-bye. So maybe one more live one, Andy, and then I'll return to some of these written ones. Okay, perfect. Because we just have one more in the queue, and it's oh, good. Yeah, then let's we'll close down that line because otherwise I'm not going to get through these guys. Or maybe I will. We'll see. Hey, Andrew. Hi. Um, my video is off. I hope that's okay. Uh, I've been thinking about what you said over the weekend about how emptiness can't harm emptiness. Um, yeah. And it makes perfect sense that if a meditator is stabilized and pure awareness, that nothing would really harm them because they're resting in space. Um, I've just been thinking, especially over the talks you've done about politics recently, mm -hmm. about how it seems necessary to go out of my comfort zone to expose myself to things that uh, I guess I would consider might harm my heart in some ways. Um, but uh, to, I guess, give a little background on this, I've basically just strictly kept news consumption to reading for, yeah. for years. And when you've introduced to us practices like turning off the audio or, you know, um, it makes sense to me. It seems like that's sort of a, a zone of discomfort that I should slowly be edging toward. Um, but then there's also this part of me that feels like it's good to take certain precautions and measures to protect totally. my heart. Um, totally. And I was wondering if you can speak to how I should balance that as a Yeah, good question, good question. Um, yeah, first of all, I, I might amend something you said early on when you talked about you know, harming my heart. You don't wanna do that, obviously. You, you want to work <laughs> with experiences that will actually fundamentally open your heart. And sometimes to open your heart, your heart needs to be broken. Um, and that, that's really interesting thing. You know, I mean, the heart is a really unique organ that um, unlike other things when they break, when the heart breaks, if it's broken properly, the heart gets bigger, right? Yeah. So that's what we wanna do. We, we want to, and, and this is the issue of, of not too tight, not too loose, balancing, titrating your experience where, yes, one of the, the biggest dangers we have is, especially in the West, is getting stuck in our bubble bath, our comfort plan. Yeah. You know, that's the no growth. That's, you know, remember the three concentric circles thing? I don't know if you've heard me talk about that. Yeah three concentric circles in the middle is your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. That's where everybody wants to be. I mean, it's okay. But if you live there, you're just going to drown in comfort. Yeah. 
outside of that, you know, you have the stretch zone and that's what we're talking about here yeah. where you want to step out of a bubble bath. You want to, you know, get a little cold, get out of your comfort zone, stretch so that, you know, you can expand because if, if you just try to stay in your bubble bath, guess what happens? That comfort zone just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and you get more brittle and picky and bitchy and complainy, right? Yeah. That's what a lot of old people do. They, I'm not saying you're old, I'm old, but you know, <laughs> So, you know, if, if you're trying to just, everything is about the comfort zone, your comfort zone gets smaller. Yeah. What we're talking about is step out into sometimes uncomfortable situations. Reverse meditations are really helpful here. And you find if you do that in the growth zone, challenge zone, you actually find your comfort zone expands. It doesn't get smaller, it grows. The farthest zone outside of that, of course, is the, is the danger risk or, or um, yeah, just that's when you stretch too far. Yeah. That's when you can get hurt. And so we have to find our way. We have to be really honest with ourselves. Um, sometimes having a glass of wine and getting into the bubble bath and hanging out is just the perfect thing to do. Sometimes really stretching out into, into dimensions that are really quite uncomfortable, you know, like working with fear, as I was alluding to before, super important. But if you just, again, like if you follow your bliss in the hot tub, you're just going to get drowned in your bliss. You just get blissed out. The other extreme is if you just follow your fear, you're just going to get freaked out. Yeah. So somewhere in there is the middle way. And only we know that. So I, I recommend people just are aware of this kind of pedagogical approach. Be willing to get out, stretch, um, get dinged a little bit, you know, get, I wouldn't say hurt, but just challenged. Yeah. And then come back to regroup and then come back out. And you'll notice if you do that, you'll just, you'll grad, you gradually get bigger and bigger, bigger as your heart, mind opens, opens, opens. To what you were talking about at the outset. So that's what comes to mind. Thank you. Welcome. Okay, so let me get through some of these written ones. Wendy, you spoke about how important it was to attain merit. I did say that, as do the traditions. Can you riff on exactly how to do that? I can. I assume it means being a good person, yes. Honest giving, etc. does it include meditation? Yes. Are there some things I may not expect that would attain merit in the Buddhist tradition? Yes, I'll, I'll talk about all this. Cool. So yeah, merit um, is a big deal. You know, I mean, in the, like I mentioned, uh, when I think I've talked about this on the five paths in the Buddhist tradition, which are just basically five stages of one path, really, they're not five separate paths. The first path is really the path of accumulation. And it's principally the accumulation of merit, good deeds. And so in addition to what you were talking about, which is the most important thing, there are classic prescriptions for good deeds, good karma. Um, classically, these would be the, you know, the first five paramitas of the six. These are transcendent actions, generosity, discipline, patience, exertion, meditation. And the reason I, I include this kind of mapping of the five is because in fact, meditation is part of the accumulation of, of merit of good karma. Um, the four immeasurables, you know, um, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, the four, what are called the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, fantastic classic practice. Thinking, speaking, doing good deeds. In other words, whatever we say, speak, or act that creates good karma, good merit. 
And then some surprising things to address that, you can do this in your dreams. You can accumulate merit in your dreams. So if you go to sleep with a good intention, you do good action in your dreams, intention creates merit. And if you're lucid in a dream, intention's involved. So you can, you know, somewhat surprising, you can accumulate merit by um, your dreams. Also uh, intention itself, what's called aspirational bodhicitta, you know, just the heartfelt, honest intent um, accumulates. What you think, you know, what you do with your mind accumulates merit. So um, maybe I'll let that go for now. It's a, an incredibly important part of the journey that many practitioners tend to hopscotch over thinking that they can just do the highfalutin meditations, the high technology practices. Those practices are not nearly as effective um, unless they're charged with these so-called preliminaries. You know, in many ways, the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. So Merit, let me share the story with you. Um, at the end of my three-year retreat, we had Mingyur Rinpoche came in to talk to us. And, um, you know, we're all excited because like, oh, you know, we're, we're, we, we just graduated, we're advanced practitioners, you know, and we, we all expected to have this really esoteric talk, right, on the most, you know, nuanced esoteric practice. And for two hours, uh, Minjir Rinpoche talked about merit. I was blown away. First of all, I thought it was, you know, first of all, I was disappointed. It's like, oh man, everybody knows about merit. I know all about merit. I realized I didn't know squat about merit. And so I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Here we are at the end of, you know, this really long intensive training, do these, doing these so-called super advanced practices. <laughs> and here comes this, you know, this high, high Lama comes in and he talks to us about merit, which is like talking about kindergarten. Well, he put us back in kindergarten. We needed to be there because everybody runs over to the highfalutin stuff and they hopscotch over this. You will never understand, you know, the nature of mind reality without merit. So merit is colossally important. Good question. Okay, Laura, can you elaborate on that sleep is a product of ignorance? Specifically, what about the four stages of sleep? The functions of each one, including restoration, healing, etc. Would that imply that if ignorance were eliminated, then physical sleep itself would not happen or be needed? Or does that refer to the analogy of to sleep as unawareness only? Yeah, nice questions. Yes, uh, sleep is in fact, it is a product of ignorance. Um, oh, what to say? Let me just look at this a little bit more slowly. The functions of each one includes restoring. Yeah, so would that imply that if ignorance were eliminated, then physical its sleep would not happen? Yes, that's exactly what it implies. And as unbelievable as this is, Laura, when I first heard it, with you know my kind of medical scientific background, I said, "Are you kidding me? No way!" And so I made it a personal point, you know, to ask a ton of really respected, really high-level lamas, rinpoches, and after like the fifth one, they all said the same thing you know, you don't sleep, literally. Body may go into repose, but the mind doesn't turn off 24 seven. Um, no longer need to sleep. And in fact, at a very deep level, this is even more outrageous, Laura, you don't even need a body at that point um, because body is, is a repository store of the unconscious mind. Your body is your unconscious mind. When we sleep, that's what we drop into. We go unconscious, we drop into the body. So when you, when you truly eliminate all ignorance, 
not only do you no longer need sleep, you no longer need a body, literally. And therefore, when you die, those people, what do they do? They go up in light. Um, this is no kidding. Rainbow light, rainbow body. Um, listen to my interview with Father Francis Tiso on rainbow body and resurrection. You no longer need a body. So if you don't need a body, you surely don't need to sleep, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, does that refer to the analogy to sleep as unawareness only? No, it's, it's, it's both. It's both. Um, and again, really the important thing here for us, in addition to somewhat esoteric stuff, is that the, the, the moment-to-moment -moment expression of this primordial ignorance is distraction. I mean, um, Tenzin Wangyal writes about this quite beautifully in his book, The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep, where he says, you know, you know this, is, this is why these, these practices, by the way, are challenging because this is where ego goes to recharge its samsaric batteries. Ego feeds on distraction. It's the archetype of distraction. Ego feeds on ignorance. Ignorance and distraction are two faces of the same coin. So um, this is why when you do these deep practices, sooner or later, ego tends to put, you know, do not disturb sign saying, hey, wait a second, man. You can wake me up during the day. You can rouse me during the day, but do not rouse me at night <laughs> because this is where I go. This is where ego goes for ultimate samsaric refuge. Buddhas don't sleep. They don't fall asleep. They fall awake. Tim, uh, hi, Andrew. We are not always aware of the clear light mind. That's for sure. But would it be correct to say that the clear light mind is always aware of us? Yes and no. I'll, I'll, I'll lab on that. If so, then could we say that no one's experience is ever lost since it would remain existent in the clear light mind? Yeah, well, as to the last question, that depends on who you ask. This is where the whole Akashic thing comes into play. The Hindus have some cool things to say about this, what's called the Akasha and the Akashic records, that what they say in that tradition that nothing is ever lost. Everything is kind of coded and encoded in the Akasha, in the Akashic records, somewhat connected to you know, the collective unconscious and somewhat connected to the A consciousness, but not the same. Um, and so, yeah, this is, it depends on who you ask, that no one's experience is ever lost. Depends on who you ask. First part, um, we are not always aware of the clear light mind, but would it be correct to say the clear light mind is always aware of us? Well, yes and no, not, not quite, because the clear light, light mind is not separate from us. And so I wouldn't use that phraseology. I mean, you know, for one thing, and this is important, Tim, is that there's only the clear light mind. I mean, that's all there is. Like even right now, no kidding. I mean, like right here, right now, this is the clear light mind. We just don't see it as such. When we dream, that's the clear light mind. We don't see it as such. In deep dreamless sleep, that's the clear light mind. We don't see it that way. So um, the clear light mind is all there is. And so it isn't, it isn't quite accurate, nor is it quite inaccurate to say, that the clear light mind is always aware of us. That, that kind of nomenclature doesn't, is somewhat nonsensical at this level. The clear light mind in and of itself is always aware. Um, when you say it's aware of us, that's a tricky thing to say. I wouldn't actually say that, but the nature of the clear light awareness is in fact awareness. So when you imply that it's aware of us, that implies that there's something aware of something else. No, uh-uh. 
It's the reflective awareness, aware of itself. So but subtle nuances around your nomenclature here, but that's what comes to mind. So one second last question here from Doug and then perfect timing, then we'll close it up for today. So this is from Doug, second question. I am curious about when you move from localized awareness within the subtle body to non-localized awareness awakening rigpa. Did you receive a clear transmission pointing out or did your teacher say that experience that was a little flame of awakening, a glimpse of rigpa? And did you receive instructions about how to turn this state, that's a nyam, rigpa into a state or trait, uh, uh, tokpa? Did you receive instructions about how to do this? I did. And if you did, would you share with this, would you share this with us? Uh, yeah, I can share a little bit, I guess. Um, Doug is prying into my deep meditative life here. <laughs> You're gonna write an article here, bud, or what? National Enquirer? <clears throat> just playing with you. Yeah, so I mean, what's important here, um, let me just read this again real quick. I'm curious about when you move from localized awareness to non-localized awareness, did you receive a clear pointing out transmission? Yeah, so you know, in, in this tradition and others, um, Shakti, Shaktipad in the Hindu tradition, pointing out transmission in this tradition or pointing in, I think is a more appropriate term. The teacher who lives in this in, in this domain nonstop, they can, you know, if you're open to it, they can point out this dimension of your being. That is, in fact, as you say, that's a mere experience. It's a state. It's not realization. It's not stable. It's not a trait. But what it does is it points something out. Um, and then the, the question is stability. So that's when you go from speaking of the five paths that pointing out, if it's recognized, is actually the third path. It's called the path of seeing, <clears throat> connected to the first boonie. That's when you see reality, emptiness, the nature of mind for the first time. Then what happens is you enter the fourth path, which is the path of familiarity. That's where you then transform that glimpse into a gaze. Um, and that's really what constitutes the path in the Vajrayana. So that's what, that's what makes Tantric Vajrayana practice different from causal vehicle, Hinayana, Mahayana, different from Vajrayana. Those are called causal vehicles. This is a fruitional vehicle. By that, what it means is it, it starts at the end, points out the, the omega. <clears throat> and then you come back to alpha and work your way back up to stabilize it. That's what constitutes the path. So in my own experience, you know, it's pretty kind of classic, not special at all. Um, I, I had the great gift, you know, like many do to have these, this kind of experience. Um, and then I drank, you know, I, I was going to say I drank the Kool-Aid, but I, I just then simply did the practices as they were presented to me because I trusted the stabilization approaches and all that. And then I started in conjunction with the classic approaches of stabilizing. I, I kind of experimented on my own you know, just realizing like, what can I do to work with this? And, and so for me, you know, what's key here is devotion. Guru yoga um, is really in incredibly helpful. That was super helpful for me to, to kind of um, do a little progress. And then, you know, working with um, the jhana states, the high, what's called access concentration, high level shamatha, 
So I'm not sure I want to go too much farther into this. Um, this could come back to haunt me when I run for political office. <laughs> so in order to protect, protect, protect my future political aspirations, <laughs> I probably ought to stop. Um, but I mean, the idea that I think the important thing here, Doug, is that, you know, the, the traditions have very thought out, intelligent, sophisticated systems that work. That, you know, like you say, particular dimension of mind is pointed out, it's revealed. Most wisdom traditions have that standard. Then each tradition will have its own supporting, you know, how do you, as Houston Smith put it, transform that flash of illumination into abiding light. And I, you know, because the Buddhist path is, is the one I follow the most um, passionately, the Buddhist prescription just completely worked for me in the ways that I said. And, and they work for everybody, really, if you just do it. And then merit, you know, kind of um, underlies this entire thing. So I'm not sure where else I can go with that. Otherwise, I'll never get elected to Congress next year. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Great to see you. Another full rich period. We end right at the hour and a half mark. Um, join us on Monday night. Join us on Saturday for the movie. We got so many cool things happening right now. Thank you everybody for taking time to join us. Great fun to be with you all. Um, to whatever extent, merit, dedication of merit, since we're talking about merit at the beginning. It's always great to set the intention before you started teaching that the aspiration is, you know, I will accumulate merit, not merely for myself, but really for the benefit of all. And at the end, you give the merit away. It's a great kind of, the only way to seal it is to give it away. It's perfect, I love it. The only way to maintain your merit is to give it away. Isn't that beautiful? So whatever merit we may have accumulated here, we dedicate it in whatever way that speaks to us for the benefit of all sentient beings. So um, do that on your own, has more impact than you think. And see you same time, same place next week. Bye.